This morning we find Jesus by the lakeside. He's at the height of his popularity. Crowds, even multitudes, are following Jesus. They're clambering after him. They can't get enough. But then, with excitement at its peak, Jesus withdraws to a mountainside. And there he calls, he sets aside a few, not many, just a few. So today we're going to move with Jesus from the lakeside to the mountainside and then we're going to see what it all means for us. We'll look at some application. From the crowds to just a few, from pushing and clambering to being called to being called by God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will open it up to us that we may catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in these words. Mould us and shape us to be more like him. Through his name we pray. Amen. In today's passage, starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, we find Jesus by the lake, and he's at the centre of all sorts of activity and excitement. There's almost too much for us to take in in these few verses. So to help us focus on what's going to happen we're going to keep an eye on the verbs, the words that tell us what the crowds are doing. So Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Crowds had come from far and wide, from Galilee in the north and from Judea in the south. And that covers Israel in those ancient days, in biblical days. There was Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, and then we had Judea with Jerusalem in the south. But not only were crowds gathering from Israel, but from the surrounding regions, Gentiles, from the territories around Israel were also hearing about Jesus and were following him. And following is our first verb. It tells us what the crowds are doing. Now this following is not out of devotion for Jesus. It's out of fascination. It's out of what will this miracle worker do next. People are saying, let's go and see what this young rabbi is up to. How many will he heal today? Uh, who will have demons cast out? If we're really lucky, there might even be a scrap between him and the Pharisees. Let's go and see. And so out of fascination, crowds followed Jesus. Uh, Verse 9. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding. This is a real step up for Jesus. Not only the multitudes following Jesus, but they're also crowding him. And this is our second verb. Crowding Jesus so much that he organises a boat. Now there's two advantages of that. First of all, it's a floating pulpit. means that he can um, sort of just anchor the boat just offshore and talk to the crowds without them pushing into him. But also it's a handy escape route in case things get a uh, a, a little bit busy, a little bit too much. And this is explained a bit more in verse 10. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. See, many, many people are being healed, but it's never ending. For every person Jesus heals, there are two or three or four or a dozen more behind wanting to be healed. More sick, more diseased, more desperate, people with no alternative. And so they're all pushing forward. And pushing is our our third verb 
The crowd are following, crowding and pushing and it doesn't stop there. Verse 11. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And now we see people are falling. Our fourth verb. As demons are cast out, people hit the dirt. People fall to the ground. They're laid prostrate. It's all very dramatic, very busy and very exciting. We can imagine the five disciples, Peter, Andrew, James and John, the fishermen, and the tax collector Levi. We can imagine them being thrilled, caught up with the excitement, carried away by the drama, but not Jesus. Jesus never gets carried away by the crowds. He's in control. He does not let the crowds control him. And he knows there's a big difference between following and crowding, pushing and falling, and being called. And for Jesus, it's all about being called. As we see as we move from the lakeside to the mountainside. Verse 13. Jesus went up onto a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So, at the height of his popularity, Jesus withdraws from the crowds, takes along some followers, and then climbs a mountainside. And from these few, verse 14, from these few, he appointed 12, designating them apostles. Now there's a big picture event happening here. Jesus is not just enlarging his inner circle. He's just not going from five disciples to 12. He's not going to just descend from the mountain with a rabbi that has a band of 12 close followers. No, there's much more to this calling. For on a mountain, appointing 12, there are strong echoes of Moses and the 12 tribes of Israel. There is a real sense that Jesus is reconstituting the people of God. With him as the founder and with these 12 disciples designated to lead the new Israel. There's a transition here, a very significant transition that starts here and is completed at Pentecost. Now, the people of God are no longer the 12 tribes of Israel, but the people of God are Christ followers, the church. And this seismic shift of transferring the people of God from the 12 tribes of Israel to Christ followers, the church, happens so quietly, without fanfare and just like Jesus' birth many missed what was happening on this mountainside the church is going to become God's people the process starts here and it finishes at Pentecost and so the church becomes God's people the tribes of Israel and so this is the big picture this is the symbolic sweeping and cosmic implications of this mountainside calling. And yet it's so quiet and unassuming and very typical of Jesus. And not only this, this call as such, well, it's standalone, isn't it? Jesus is never going to appoint 12 people to be apostles in the same way that he did these 12 here. But his call, his call is not unique. His call goes out to us all. It is far broader. He calls many more than just the twelve. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I call my sheep, and they hear my voice, and they come. 
And so the call of God is broader. In uh, John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. See the key? Listen to my voice. Hear the call. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And so uh, in this teaching where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he is talking about us as the sheep in the other pen. We are the Gentiles that have been called. So Jesus' call is much more than this call of the twelve. This is reinforced from our Romans reading, Romans 1. In verse 6, Paul reminds the Roman Christians, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 6. Called to belong. So even though this event in Mark chapter 3 is unique in that it's the start, the inauguration of the people of God as a church, it is also the fact that Jesus calls us each by name. We are sheep. We have heard the good shepherd's call. And what are we called to? What's it all about? Is Jesus calling us to be better people, to try harder, to come to church more regularly, to serve the poor, to even evangelise the world? What is Jesus calling us to? So we go back to Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. He appointed 12, designating the apostles, that they might be with him. That they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. You see, Jesus calls the twelve first and foremost to be with him. The mighty works, the high acts of devotion, the great sacrifices will come, but first and foremost, our call is to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet, to listen, to learn, to eat with him, to walk dusty roads with him, to pray and to worship with him, to be with Christ. This is the mark of a disciple, to be with Christ. Now, whatever you think being a Christian is, First and foremost, it is to be with Christ. But oh, how we try to avoid it. (laughs) We try to bypass. We try and look for workarounds. And we think by being a good person, well, that's enough. Uh, We think if we try our best and keep our nose clean, then that's enough. We attend church, serve the poor, maybe even evangelise the world. And we try and do this by sidestepping being with Jesus. As long as we do the important stuff, it'll be okay. But that's not how Christianity works. I'll give you an example of what I mean. Once a young priest complained to Mother Teresa about all the demands put on him and how it was getting in the way of serving the poor, which was his life's passion. So if we step aside and think about this, this young man had given up everything to serve the poor. As a Catholic priest, he'd given up the right to marriage and a family. He'd given up a career, a comfortable lifestyle. You name it, he had given it up. But Mother Teresa hit the nail on the head when she replied, Young man, your vocation is not to serve the poor. Your vocation is to love Jesus. You see, Mother Teresa got it. She got that it was all about being with Jesus first. And though she was legendary, and rightfully so, for spending her life for the poor of India, she knew that first and foremost, 
She was to spend time with Jesus. And it was out of her being with Jesus that her serving others flowed. And the disciples got it as well. It took them a while. (laughs) But if we fast forward some three years past the cross to the birth of the church in those first few days, in Acts chapter 4, a lame man is healed at the temple gate by Peter and John. And this causes such excitement that they're arrested and they're put on trial before the Sanhedrin. These are the same people who had just a few months before put Jesus to death. And so they're on trial. And are Peter and John quaking in their boots? Far from it. They are fearless. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. This is how they end their defence. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They looked the Sanhedrin in the eye and said, do your worst. And the Sanhedrin are perplexed. They don't know what to do. So Acts 4 verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. For the last three years, they had answered the call to be with Jesus and these men were transformed. If there's one thing you take home this morning, let it be this. Being a Christian means being with Jesus. Spend time, I encourage you to spend time lingering with Christ. Lingering in the Bible. Not just to tick it off, to say that I've done my spiritual deed, whatever it is, but linger in the Bible, God's word. Pray, talk to him, worship, sing praises to him, listen to Christian worship songs. Serve him, serve Christ alongside, shoulder to shoulder with the people in this room and other people who have a passion for Christ. Spend time with Jesus in creation. In the heat of the day, rest under a shady tree, either in your garden or down by the lake, and linger with Christ. And if you do, you will be transformed like Peter and John and countless others through the centuries who have realised the main point is to be with Jesus. And I pray that Christ will captivate every affection of your heart, of my heart, until we delight to be with him and him above all else. And this is my prayer for us this morning. And as we move back to Mark's passage now, we come from the heights of a mountain, and even though we're still on a mountain, we come to a list. Now, are you a list person? There are a minority of people who love their lists. They're stuck on the fridge. If you're married to a person like that, it can be a wee bit of a trial. Lists. From the highs of being called to be with Jesus, we look at a list of names. For as Jesus calls the twelve to be with him, he also names the twelve. Now five we already know, the four fishermen and the tax collector Levi. And uh, we mentioned this a few weeks ago, but Levi has two names, Matthew and Levi. So Matthew, Levi, he's in the list. And there's much that can be said about this list, but just one thing this morning. And that's... They're a mixed lot. They're not a cohesive group. A little bit like a sports team, and you've got two captains at school. 
you know, and the two captains vie for the best sports people. And then there's a few people left. Jesus seems to have chosen those few people that are left. Let me give you an example. On the one hand, you have a tax collector, and on the other, you have Simon the Zealot. Now, in Jesus' day, the word zealot was a title given to freedom fighters, the guerrillas, those sworn to overthrow the Roman occupiers. So Jesus has sitting around him a tax collector and a freedom fighter. Be a little bit like being in France in the Second World War and having someone from the underground resistance sitting next to and having a meal with a French collaborator. It'd be difficult to get through them <laughs> to get through that meal, wouldn't it? I mean, that's the sort of people that Jesus has called. It's a bit like this fictitious report from the Jordan Management Consultant Group to Jesus, son of Joseph. And the report goes something like this. Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for managerial positions in your new organisation. All of them have taken our battery of tests. We've run the results through the computer We've also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no leadership qualities. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a sceptical attitude that will tend to undermine morale. Matthew has been backlisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Association. James, the son of Alpheus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings and have both registered high on the manic depressive scale. However, one of the candidates shows great potential. A man of ability, resourcefulness, meets people well. He has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places, highly motivated, ambitious and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. And so here we're introduced to Judas. Last On the list, verse 19, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And it's a most sobering end to today's passage as we've moved from the lake to the mountainside. Last week, we looked at verse 6 where the Pharisees left the synagogue and started plotting to kill Jesus. Here we're introduced to Jesus' betrayer. So even this early in the Gospel of Mark, the key elements of Christ's death are here. Already they are plotting to murder Jesus. Already we are introduced to his betrayer. And the shadow of the cross looms large on the life of Jesus. But for us, uh, what's our application? What's our take home today? Well, there are three. First, know that you are called. I mean, really know. Don't settle for a maybe I think I'm called, maybe on a good day God loves me. If I keep coming to church and keeps my fingers crossed, I think I'm okay. Don't settle for that. Know deep down that Christ has called you by name, 
to be with him. I mean, this is the gospel. I mean, this is why Jesus went to the cross. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he was only one person, one man. And so he was limited to the amount of people that he could be with. I mean, his inner circle physically couldn't be more than 12. But because of his resurrection, all of those physical limitations are gone. They're wiped away so each one of us can be called into that inner circle of being with Jesus. I mean, that's the good news of the gospel. No, be assured in the depth of your heart that that's you. Now, if you're interested, I have this booklet called Why Jesus? It's an Alpha production um, by Nikki Gumble. It's very good. If you're not sure that Christ has called you, if you do not have assurance, then come up to me afterwards and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a copy of this and you, it, you can take it away and, and think and pray about it. You talk to someone who's been a Christian a long time. Make an appointment to come and see me if you want. But do not rest until you are assured that Christ has called you by name to be with him. So that's the first thing. Second thing, love the church, especially the annoying ones. Now what do I mean by this? Well, Jesus chose a motley crew back then and he chooses a motley crew today. And that means you. Every one of you and especially me. And it delights the Father's heart to have a tax collector and a zealot with Jesus for three years. It delights the Father's heart when a Labour and a National voter sit down in church shoulder to shoulder and worship Christ together. He gets a special chuckle when there's a Highlander and a Crusader supporter (laughs) sitting next to each other, worshipping God. Or a tattooed, body-pierced millennial and a pearl-necklace-wearing grandmother when they sit next to each other and worship the living God. God delights in it. He even arranges it in his church that these are the sort of people that you'll find in your home group or when you are on the morning tea roster or when you are doing some other act of service. And one of the sad facts of church life is people who waste this opportunity. People who leave a church because of personality conflicts of not getting on. Don't let that be you. Because when you are, you're actually fighting against God, who in his grace has arranged those people that need to help us knock our rough edges off. Listen, there isn't one church anywhere that doesn't have people that you'll find annoying. And if there is and you go to it, guess what? I can almost guarantee that you will become that annoying person. Love the church. At times it's not easy. Most of the time we rub shoulders with people, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are just a delight. Most of the time. But every now and again, don't waste the opportunity. Thirdly, know that you're called, love the church, and also know that we witness out of an overflow of being with Jesus. I mean, this is the only basis that we have of telling other people. This is how it works. We get to be with Jesus as we linger in the Bible, as we pray, as we worship. 
His Holy Spirit at times is so real and so close and so warm. And we know the Holy Spirit is our comforter and our guide. And prayers are answered and circumstances fall into place. And we know this. And even in the tough times, and especially in the tough times, when circumstances are just difficult and our prayers, they feel like they fall to the ground unanswered, even in those times, we know that Christ has not left us. And if we hang, if we cling on to him, he will see us through. And this is what we have to share. But we're not sharing a theology when we talk about Jesus with others, and we don't share a lifestyle. We're not sharing a therapy. You don't come to Jesus and you'll feel good. We're not sharing an offer to join a service group like the Lions or the JC. I mean, these are all secondary benefits. Primarily, we're saying, I've been with Jesus. He's awesome. Come and meet him too. And this is how we share our faith with others. Now, in these three take-homes, I've painted the ideal. The ideal where we are 100% assured that we are called and that we love hanging out with Jesus. That we're 100% love loving that challenged person next to us and that we delight in sharing Jesus with others. But how many of us live up to that ideal? Well, I'd say none of us. (laughs) None of us live up to that ideal. We're all a work in progress. So my prayer this morning and through the week has been that the Holy Spirit will put his finger on each one of us on one of those three areas. And this morning as we discern, as we're listening to what the Holy Spirit saying, one of those areas, he'll be saying, this is the one I want you to work on. I'll help you. Let's do it. So for you, what's your work on? Is it to spend time with Christ? Is that what the Holy Spirit is nudging to you too? You know, just linger with Jesus. Be assured that you are called and loved. Maybe he's saying, love the church. Even that person you find annoying. You may even have a name that's just popped into your head. I hope it's not half a dozen names. And I hope it's not the preacher. (laughs) But maybe God's saying, well, actually, don't be resentful. Pray about it. I'll teach you how to love that person. Or maybe the Holy Spirit is saying to you, I want you to be able to share your faith. And again, there might be a name that's just popped into your mind. And the Holy Spirit is saying, I'll help you. Share about how you know Jesus and what a difference it's made for life. Don't worry if they have all sorts of objections and questions. Just share that you know me and I will make the difference in that person's life. So, which one of those three is the Holy Spirit asking you, challenging you, encouraging you in this morning? And it's all a bit of an adventure really, isn't it? It's a bit of a thrill when we get it right. Yes, sometimes our Christian faith is three steps forward and two steps back. But oh, the joy, the joy of being with Jesus, being used by him and bringing a smile to the Father heart of God, whom we worship and serve. Let's pray.